It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Michael Castagna, CEO of Mankind Corporation. Mike has over 20 years of experience in healthcare, pharmaceutical, biotech, and specialty pharmacy industries. He joined Mankind from Amgen, where he spent over three years as Vice President, Global Commercial Lead, and Vice President, Global Lifestyle Management. Prior to Amgen, he was with Bristol-Myers Squibb, Sandoz Novartis, Merck, and CVS. Mike received his Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy degree from Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, his Director of Pharmacy from Massachusetts College of Pharmacy, and his MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael Castagna, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here today. And gosh, we're going into month four uh, in COVIDian times, that's, as it's been called. And uh, maybe we just kind of start off a little bit. You guys are kind of square in the space. We spoke a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how are you personally holding up and how is your organization during these uh, pandemic times? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was quite scary for a lot of us back in February, March, as this was coming towards the U.S. And you you heard, saw the rampant spread in New York and some were here in right outside of Los Angeles, so right. yeah. uh, we're pretty close to it. Um, and, and so getting the company prepared, getting our employees prepared, moving to an entire virtual mindset overnight, uh, I think accelerated change pretty quickly. Uh, and, um, yeah. you know, I think it, it, not only that, we had an opportunity to help bring part of the solutions to COVID as treatments. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing more about that as we get into the podcast. So, but your family's doing well. Have you all been, are you still sheltering in place? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm in Connecticut, but as you know, I've got home in, in California as well, but I've been kind of out of the loop of what's been going on on, on the West Coast. Yeah, no, I haven't gotten stuck in a college dormitory anywhere yet. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, my, my kids are home virtually driving my, uh, their mom crazy and, uh, you know, but no, the, the, we're doing well. And you're going into the office or are you still working remotely? Uh, I just came back to the office last week. So we've you been did? out for okay. two months. So, so uh, it. it was nice to get back. People are slowly coming back in part-time for the month of June. And right. then um, as they get back out there in July, August, we'll, we'll continue to, to reevaluate that. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, we're recording this during the first week of June. So we're uh, we're emerging, I think, uh, hopefully post-COVIDian time sometime soon. Well, well, Michael, let's let's turn the clock back a little bit earlier. I'd love to hear a little bit about your early years, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. Um, you know, my, my background, I, I grew up with a single mom. I, I was born yeah. um, 
uh, you know, living honestly in a mobile home. So uh, most people don't know that. And and my mom raised me on her own and down the house she did it, but she slowly uh, got enough money to own her first business and then rehabbed the house and then sold the house and then bought another business. And kind of we survived, um, you know, paycheck to paycheck most of my life uh, at the end only, of the day. Only child, Michael? Did only you child, yeah. I was, I was a handful. Um, yeah. so, so I didn't sleep as a kid, uh, and I still don't sleep as an adult. So that's been uh, one of my successful traits is I'm not as smart as everybody, but I cannot work anybody. <laughs> and what part of the country did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in South Jersey, right outside Camden slash Philadelphia, if people know yeah. that area of the world. Yeah, sure, sure. No, well, my daughter's a rower, so we get down there for a number of different rowing activities. Well, that's terrific. And, um, uh, you know, growing up, were there people that inspired you? It sounds like your mom obviously had a pretty strong influence on you. It sounds like she was a great role model. Uh, anyone else? Was there a special uncle or coach in school or teacher that, uh, you know, influenced you or inspired you during those younger years? Yeah, you know, two uh, teachers were very impactful in my career. Uh, one, I, I, I had no mentors. I was the first in my family to graduate high school, let alone get into college. Wow. Wow. And so I, there was no one to give me guidance. My mom didn't even know what college really was. Uh, she didn't yeah. even finish high school uh, and had me at 18 years old. So that gives you a little bit of perspective yeah. of her survival. And and so when I got sure. to high school, um, my anatomy teacher actually suggested a pharmacist. And and wow. so that's I said, I love math and science, and I was not a big fan of history and English. And so that's how I wound up focusing my future on pharmacy. And then I applied yeah. to the, world, the country's oldest school there in Philadelphia. And then my other teacher was my economics teacher, Mr. Scott. And I'll never forget Mr. Scott because he taught me, you know, how the value of savings and compound interest over mm -hmm. time. And so I was winning the stock market contest in high school. Uh, <laughs> I've been investing since I was probably 14 years old. Um, and you know, really was a big fan of the stock market and the value it could create if you uh, did it properly. Yeah. Were you a good student? Uh, no, I was a horrible student. <laughs> you know how many times I hear that? <laughs> you, it sounds like you excelled at the things you liked, though. Right? Yeah, I, I, I did apply myself in fairness. Uh, I didn't have anyone pushing me to do homework. I was more interested in making money and uh, creating stuff. I had my own lawn business. I had my own paper route for the town. I had uh, wow. servicing. I would service old people's homes and do errands for them. Um, so I, I was always entrepreneurial by nature, but um, right. never really applied myself to school. And and, and in college, I, I, I started to learn. I probably had a learning disability that I just never really understood what that was and how hard studying was for me. And have you been diagnosed with that later in life? Did you have ADHD or dyslexia? Yeah, no, I, I went and, and, you know, I think I've gotten smarter as I gotten older. So um, <laughs> maybe by the time I got to, went to get diagnosed, they said, no, you're, you're doing good. <laughs> so. Well, the sleep thing was kind of a hint on that part, right? What, what about sports? Were you involved in music, theater, debate, any, any other types of things at school? That, that those, those require brain power. You have to be smart. So I, I, went, I went after football because uh, I just told me to put, hit the guy left or right, and I would make the hole for the guy to run by me. And um, that, that's, about, that's about the extent of my sports. I played football for five years from you know, middle, wow. middle school to high school. And you're a big Eagles fan, as we know. Yeah, and and that kept me out of trouble. You know, honestly, just having a coach and being disciplined in practice, uh, I, I think it was very helpful at that point in my life. Yeah, and um, absolutely. When I realized absolutely. I got to high school, I wasn't big enough, so I, I moved on to work. <laughs> now you mentioned entrepreneurial things. What what was the first entrepreneurial thing you did? Was it the ubiquitous paper route, or were you doing other things even uh, at an earlier age? Yeah, I, and I think the paper route was probably the earliest 
paying job where you had to hustle for your tips and, you know, right. remember little tickets back then, papers were delivered in the afternoon. That's right. And you had to go door to door to collect it, right? And I had an apartment complex with a lot of older people who were very, very nice. And they thought a quarter was a lot of money. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I need, I need 50 cents. Uh, but, um, but no, I, I enjoyed the hustle. And, uh, you know, and, and I went on to do many other things that, you know, my kids were always like, how many jobs did you have? I'm like, I've worked at Burger King. I've had paper routes. I've sold pagers. I've sold knives. You name it, I've probably tried it. So That's great. That's great. And where did all that money go to? Did you have some vices that you enjoyed during those years? Did you save away for college? No, I, I was on my own for college. So, yeah. you know, I graduated with as little debt as possible. I enjoyed cars. So, you know, I would always spruce up my cars a little bit. But I, honestly, I invested and I saved. Um, that was my learning in life was, you know, to be financially independent, not struggle like my mother did. And, um, you know, when you want, when you're evicted from your house many times and you got to move a box to, you know, four times in a year, you you don't like that feeling. And, and so, uh, for me, I never wanted to be in that position. I never wanted my kids to be in that position. And so always making sure we're financially sound was one of my first priorities in life. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting for that security. Did you move around schools a lot? Was that part of, uh. So mom would move to other towns or or within different school districts, I suppose. I probably went to five why I couldn't learn as much. I, I I went to ten schools by the time I was in sixth grade. Oh my goodness. By sixth grade. Oh my gosh. And then I got a little wow. bit of stability. We moved towns, but I could commute to the old school and and high school was finally nice. I got to stay in one high school, one house for four years. Yeah. Did mom eventually remarry? Mom never got married. Um still single today, living in New Jersey. Yeah. And um, you know, it's because I'm a divorced parent now, and I remember uh, my mom would meet a man, and I would like him, and then she would break up with him. I'm like, he was actually a nice guy. What are you doing? And so yeah. I was very conscious about who my kids would meet, and um, that part of my life as I went through that next journey, and yeah. I ultimately got remarried, um, yeah. and I've been very lucky. And so my kids uh, say, hey, I got two moms. I get two holidays. I get two everything. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I got a couple of those as well. <laughs> so, so thinking back to those uh, school sessions and uh, the the work that you did, of course, during school, what, what was kind of the one that you thought really was the funnest, or maybe the one you made the most money at, and you really enjoyed and did over a longer period of time? Tell us a little bit about that. You know, selling clothes in high school, I was making twelve dollars an hour back in '93. Wow, that's pretty cool at retail, I presume. At right? retail, I was very successful yeah. selling, and that's when I discovered. Um, you know, it was in my family jeans probably, but uh, I love selling clothes because then I got everything at 50% off and I could dress nice. So That's great. Yeah. that was one of my more favorite jobs. And my second favorite job outside of my professional jobs has been uh, valeting cars. I love cars and uh, uh, being able to be paid to actually drive a Porsche and someone's Land Rover, I thought was the coolest thing. Did you work for like a valet company where you'd go to private parties or was it at a, a restaurant or a hotel? I did one of the most popular nightclubs in Philadelphia, right on the riverfront there oh, back in the 90s. Fantastic. And uh, I'll never forget, a guy pulled up in a Ferrari and gave me the keys. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> How do you know you ever see me again? <laughs> uh, and I said, I looked at his thing. I was like, what are you doing? He goes, water ice. And I'm like, I'm going to own a water ice shop. <laughs> you know, so. When did you make the decision about going to college? I mean, obviously, you didn't have role models there. I'm sure you had some folks that encouraged you. Was that something that you decided on early on? Yeah, look, I, I thought college is what you did to be successful. Um, right. And so, therefore, I, I wanted to be successful, and therefore, I thought college was the solution. The question is, you know, my goal was to make 100 grand a year. And and uh, what yeah. could I do that? And the, the degree that enabled me to do that was a pharmacy degree. And my my goal after that was to go back and either get a business degree or become a physician. And 
Um, and so when I looked at maybe being able to work part-time as a pharmacist, for example, saying, oh, I can make 50 grand part-time. Well, that's more than my mother ever made. Um, I could easily work 20 hours a week and go to school full-time and go be a doctor. And then when I got to that point in pharmacy school, um, I started working in the industry my second year of college in 1997 in pharmaceuticals. So I've never left. It's been 23 phenomenal years of track record here. And um, and therefore, I, I wound up not going to medical school because I pretty much knew I wanted to stay in the industry and I felt I could help society um, by by doing what I do in drug development and running a yeah. company. And you actually worked as a pharmacist, right, at CVS while you were getting your degree, correct? Yeah. So as soon as I got into yeah. pharmacy school, I immediately got a job at CVS. And then six months later, I got a job at a hospital. So I was working two jobs. And then I had a third job doing like uh, per diem work at a nursing home and specialty pharmacy. So I was working three jobs through school, working 40, 50 hours a week wow. and taking full credits of 20 credits a semester. And so when I see these kids today, they're worried about balance and yoga. And, and I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I worked nonstop. I studied nonstop. And well, you don't sleep. You get an extra eight hours a day, Michael, and all of us, the rest of us. That, that is true. It was a very uh, important secret ingredient I had. Oh, great. And you were th with CVS for a good long time. What was it, about 14 years? Yeah, I started there in 95 and I left around 2010. So yeah, um, yeah. back when I worked for them, they were 1,200 stores and now they're 9,000. So <laughs> and it was a good run. And what's funny to me is the same problems I saw when I worked for them even a decade ago are the same problems they have today as a company. They've been able to grow, but they still have interesting cultural things, right? But they, yeah, they've continued yeah. to evolve. And you went back to the Wharton School. We, we have that in common uh, and got your MBA. Was that kind of your motivation as well to get that finishing degree to kind of refine your business school, you know, uh, business skills? Or what was the, the, the logic around getting the MPA, MBA? So when I went to pharmacy school, we had a joint alliance with Drexel. And so I had already finished my first year of my MBA by the time right. I finished pharmacy school by taking all the electives during that time. And then I... You know, if you know where Wharton is, you come up off Spruce Street there off 76. Yep. And every day I would come off the exit and I would drive by the Wharton School and go to make a left and go to pharmacy school, which was six blocks down on 42nd Street. Right. And so when I thought about going to school, actually, I didn't think I could get into Wharton. So I, I was at the point now where I applied and I was either going to go back part time at Drexel or full time in the executive MBA. And I, I got in uh, the second time. I didn't get in the first time because I was 24 <laughs> trying to get to an executive MBA program. And he said, you, you, you have the role. <laughs> what, what kind of experience do you have? <laughs> yeah. And he said, our average age is 36, you know, maybe work another year or two and get promoted. So I took their feedback. I boosted my GMAT and reapplied and I got in the second time. And, um, Good for you. Good for you. And did you do that full time or was that an executive program? I did the executive MBA, which uh, then I worked full time and went to school full time again. And it was hard. I mean, it was really hard um, and uh, forever thankful. I wound up meeting my, my wife. I recently got married three years ago and uh, she's a Wharton alum as well. We met at a Wharton alumni event. So. so looking back at some of those earlier years and let's say kind of up to the time before you left um, uh, CVS, what were some of the early leadership lessons? I mean, did you manage people during that period? You remember the first time that's, you started to manage people? Yeah. You know, my, my biggest lesson um, was ver I was very fortunate. I met somebody who worked in a uh, hospital when I was working in the hospital. And he said, what are you going to do when you're done? And I said, I'm not really sure. I'm just starting out. And yeah. he took me down the industry and I was able to meet 10 pharmacists and maybe a couple other executives, but 10 people who all got to their jobs through different ways, meaning somebody was a school teacher, somebody was a pharmacist right. doing training, somebody was a pharmacist doing marketing, business development. And so I realized within pharmacy, you could do seven different things. Wow. Just that alone. 
but they all took different career paths. And, and I realized at a young age that, you know, as much as people tell you to follow the sequential career succession, uh, the reality is people just want people that are going to be hardworking, deliver good quality products and think on their feet and be able to, to drive innovation and transformation in business. Um, and that's really was my, I was always willing to push companies forward and push the brands hard, um, not just to put something on the deck to get me promoted and make me look good, but really to drive change. And um, I think that's been a secret to my career. I've never been one to play the politics. Uh, I'm not good mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I just worked really hard to make a difference. And, and I felt that that has paid off um, in my career. And I, and I was I managed my own career. And I always tell this to people is, you know, companies have pathways and that's your choice to stick to them. Um, but there's plenty of employers out there and everyone needs good employees. So, Did you have any favorite bosses or mentors along the way, particularly during those early years? Yeah, I, I had a couple. Um, you know, and, and one of my biggest mentors turned out to have a major flaw. And uh, that was a very disappointing um, thing because, you know, someone you looked up to for many years turned out to, to really have some bad behaviors personally. And um, that that dropped them, you know, from high on my list to bottom my list. And then I had another mentor. Um that was my boss twice for Bristol Myers Squibb and, and Kevin taught me a lot about leadership and pharmaceuticals and business planning and just a, a great person who I could always bounce ideas off. And then another guy uh, who was my boss back in the early 2000s, um, Pat was one of the best people leaders I ever had. And he taught me a lot about leadership of people and how to manage people. And, and I felt that those lessons early in my career paid dividends down, down the road. Um, we always have things we can improve upon as leaders, but being able to motivate and recruit the best talent to me is what's important. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately empowering them to go do what they do best, you know, and, and, yeah, and so and, true. Were there behaviors that you saw that you said, oh boy, that's a good lesson. That's something I never want to do. And if so, what were those? I think so, there's two things that I, I see in people's personalities sometimes that scared me as I was growing my career and scared me when I see them working for us. Um, number one is people believe control uh, knowledge is power. And if you believe right. in keeping information is going to make you more valuable, that's good for the short term, but not sharing and collaborating is actually what's, you know, that that's a bad skill. Right. Um, and, and there's several people I often see that think having more knowledge and more information makes them more powerful and people have to come to them. And that, that's a really bad trait. And so I've always felt spreading knowledge and sharing knowledge is important and collaborating is important. Um, yeah. That's number one. And number two is, Honestly, just not being a control freak. <laughs> um, you, you know, you can't know everything no matter who you are. We're all human. And many people feel like you need to know every single little thing about everything. And I'm curious by nature, so I want to know everything. And I'm sure that drives some of my people crazy. They're like, how do you keep so much knowledge in your head? But that's because <laughs> I love what I do. And so other people, this is a job and this is work. And I respect that tremendously. But I don't feel like I've worked one day in 23 years. And when you can come to work every day, loving what you do and having a passion for what you do, um, there it's priceless, you you know, and and I think that's, that's to me, I have found my Zen and I've always enjoyed healthcare. Um, and, and so therefore, you know, back to those traits is knowing your business, knowing how to put the pieces together. Those are valuable, but trying to control and beat up everybody because they don't know something, you know, that's not good leadership. 
Yeah, what you said about love and passion is so crazy. I think Mark Twain is is given credit for the, you know, find a job you love and never work a day in your life. And I think I felt that as well. That's so important. But um, I, I want to track to Mankind, where you're currently CEO today. I know you've been there about four and a half years. But before I do so, you know, you have an amazing background. You worked for CVS for almost 14, 15 years. Great company. Learned the trade. And then you worked for Merck, Sandoz, Bristol-Myers, Squip, and Amgen. I mean, probably four of the leading companies in in the area of, of healthcare and obviously health products. T tell me a little bit about kind of the common thread through that career path with just those four jobs that, you know, kind of inspired you and moved you along. Was it, was it planned? Was it haphazard? Was there, you know, a little bit of strategy there? And, you know, give us a little bit of insight because uh, you've just worked for such terrific companies over your career. Yeah. So I started my career at DuPont Pharma and then Bristol-Myers Squibb bought DuPont Pharma in 01. And so I was loyal to Bristol Myers because they paid for my MBA and they took very good care yeah. of me and trained me to be a marketer. Right. And then I finished business school and I got to this point in 05 where my boss, Kevin, who was my mentor, was had the golden handcuffs. And I really didn't know what golden handcuffs were back in 05. Mm -hmm. And he was the smart guy. And I'm like, dude, why don't you get out of here? You're so freaking smart. And he wouldn't leave. And he had all the stock. And I'm sitting there going, I don't want to be Kevin in 10 years. Yeah. So yeah. I actually quit. <laughs> And wow. I, I went to a startup because I felt if I stayed 10 more years, I would have those golden handcuffs and I wouldn't make the right choices for my career. Mm -hmm. I'd make yeah, them for money. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to make career choices for money. And I never have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's my one lesson for people is don't ever follow wow. money. Follow, follow yeah. passion and skills and that'll make yeah. you money. And so I left in, in 05 and I went to a company, a small company. I was number 33 employee at a company called Pharmaset. And many people heard of Pharmacept ultimately because they got acquired by Gilead for, I think, $11 billion. But when I went there, you know, they were worth $100 million and privately held trying to go public. And at that time, I had a job offer for J&J &J making a lot more money. But I took the startup and got that experience for a year. Mm. And the lesson then was it failed, right? And it failed in that the company survived and succeeded. But the four compounds I went to work on all failed in the first 12 months. Oh. And and we were working on a small preclinical asset called Savoldi, which became the cure for Hep C today. But back then, it was a little molecule that was a micron. Um, so so I, I then, as those things were falling short, I told the CEO, you know, I'm too. I, I went to be head of commercial. He went to hire a gray-haired executive to go public. And I said, well, I came to be the head of commercial, so I know I'm only 30 years old, but I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. So I went to move into Boston, and then from there it was about skill sets. So every job I took after that one was about learning something and bringing something. And ultimately, they were turnaround jobs. And I didn't know that as I was going through the journey. But I love challenges. And so I wind up doing turnarounds on businesses that were suffering or drugs that suffered launches or disruptive, you had know, the disruptive business model. So that's, you know, when you look at uh, Serono, which became Merck Serono up in Boston, great opportunity, huge leader in biologics, you know, loved it. Then I went to Novartis Sandoz to work and build out their biosimilar business, which are trying to change the cost of healthcare and biologics and build a whole new area. That was fun. And then from there, I went back to Bristol-Myers Squibb after a five-year hiatus to turn around one of their franchises there called Arencia. And that was fun. And uh, and then from, Am from Bristol-Myers, the executive had gone out to Amgen and wanted me to come out to California to help Amgen get ready for ultimately biosimilars, which was coming to attack them. Um, and I didn't want to live in California, but it was worth three years of my life. Um, my kids were young and said, okay, I got to move international, whether I stay at Bristol Myers or Amgen. So let me, you know, Amgen is a pretty cool company. Right. So right. I kind of took these jobs to learn new skills and along the way, you know, got a title promotion, you get a little bit more money, but yep. it, it kept building out skills. And ultimately I went back to Bristol Myers the, the second time 
I've realized by leaving, I was more valuable to the company because I had all these experiences that I couldn't have gotten mm. had I stayed. And so that's the secret to success is taking a little bit of a risk on yourself and getting experience because it's hard to get all that experience in one company these days. And it's great if you can stay, but they often won't move you as quickly as you want to move or give you that stretch assignment that you're looking for, but somebody else will. And as long as you're willing to bet on yourself, I think you'll build a new skill set and make yourself more valuable to the market. Great, great strategy. Did you get that international assignment with Amgen? You know, I, I I think I mentioned earlier in this call. You know, I got my divorce, and so that I wasn't going to leave to my kids. You know, and and uh, and so that became a career discussion, which is, hey, I'm still want to grow my career at Amgen, but if you want me to go run, you know, country or a, a region, uh, we gotta have a different conversation. That's so, not work. Yeah. Right. you know, so I think Amgen would have been flexible enough to to get me where I wanted to be. Uh, they treated me very well, and I respected them a lot. Um, but I got lucky in that little mankind here was an hour away, and and I yeah. it came to a startup again. And I remember in sixteen, this little notice came across. I was a shareholder in mankind. That's how I found out about the company uh-huh. years ago. And I said, "Oh, Sanofi's handing it back." And I'm I literally didn't know where Valencia, California was, so I Googled it, <laughs> and I'm like, "It's an hour from me. I could do that commute." So I emailed the CEO at the time and said, "Love to join you. I do turnarounds, and uh, this could be. I think it's a great drug, and you're going to need a team quickly." And three weeks later, I had an offer. Wow, that's fabulous. Now, for those that are listening, they may not know about Mankind. So just tell us a little bit about the company, your scope, product operations, services. And you did not start as CEO, right? So you came into the C-suite. Was that your first job there? Yeah, so I came in as chief commercial officer, building out the commercial infrastructure to take this product back and relaunch it. And, um, you know, the drug is incredible. It's an inhaled insulin. So for those people who know anyone with diabetes, a lot of people delay insulin by four to seven years. They're, they don't want to get into injections and checking their blood sugar. Right. And and it's real unfortunate because that's when the damage is really happening when you got these high and low sugars. So our drug basically treats that every time you eat, your sugars go up and you want to bring them down quickly. That's what we do. And mm-hmm. you want to do that safely. And we don't have as much hypoglycemia, which is the number one side effect of insulin. So people are so afraid to dose their insulin properly because of life and death of hypoglycemia. And that's something that is really important. Yeah. And so a lot of people thought, hey, it's just inhaled. Uh, I, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing for the last 100 years. And the reality is it's not just it's not the reason to use our particular product. It's because of all the other benefits of uh, right. using it with right. technology and safety. Is the efficacy as high as a, as an insular um, through? A- it's uh, We've been doing some new studies on dosing and making sure we dose it properly. And uh, that's probably the biggest flaw in the history of the development was everyone tried to treat it like injectable insulin. And they wind up underdosing the patients. And they got as good as the standard of care but if actually, if you dose it properly, you can beat the standard of care. And that's been that's been wow. some of the work we've been doing is showing you now, if you just switch your insulin alone, you're getting improvements that are, is equivalent to a new drug. Wow. Um, wow. And, and so you're not just getting the insulin, you're actually getting the avoidance of adding a third or fourth drug to yeah. your regimen. So that's new data coming out. In fact, we got data coming out next week at ADA. That'll be exciting um, for the first time in 15 years or so. We'll show quality of life data. Uh, improvement there and some good That's A1C awesome. reduction. So yeah. the, the company is a turnaround and it was a turnaround, not just because of the drug failure, but um, we had a lot of debt. And so, yeah. you know, a year into my job, uh, I became CEO by, by accident and did not expect that I expected to train under the ex- existing CEO for four to five years because I never ran a public company and I didn't know Wall right. Street. Yeah. Um, and overnight, literally three years ago, last week, I became CEO of Mankind and I uh, I jokingly said you couldn't find somebody else. What happened? <laughs> because <laughs> you know, we, I think our stock was down around less than a dollar, and this, the oh, market goodness. cap was around eighty million dollars from five hundred million dollars. 
it was a mess. And honestly, day by day, we, we dug the company out. I hired a new management team and rebuilt our reputation with Wall Street and investors. And it's been a long road for the investors. The stock is down 90% from its peak. And um, But you know we're now stable and little by little we're growing. And I think this year should be our, our transition, meaning uh, awesome. we don't have any major debts due. We don't need any major capital raises. The drug is growing. Uh, COVID was a minor setback. We weren't sure at the time it would be a major setback, but it was a minor setback now looking back. Um, and, and so, you know, when I look at all the, the survival this company's had over years, that that's what's in the DNA of this company, which I love is yeah. it, the ability to overcome obstacles to succeed is in our culture and our people. And, um, we want to retain that. And our founder was a billionaire. It's a little bit of history of the company. He had built the yeah. uh, insulin pump and pacemaker and cochlear implant, just a true visionary, true innovator. Where does the name come from? Was his name Man or his was name this? was Alfred E. Man? So, okay, so that, that's uh, someone jokingly when they were going public or, and building the company said, "What should you call it?" And somebody said, "Mankind." And he's like, "I like that name." And that's how the name stuck. <laughs> that's how it stuck. I love it. That's awesome. And how many employees today? And what's the the approximate sales of the company? Well, you're probably traded, so you can talk about it again. Yeah, no, we got about 250 employees, and um, about you know a third are in manufacturing, and about almost half are in the field or dealing with customers. And then you got the management team. So, yeah. And you're all in Valencia. That's that's your. Headquarters. No, we moved. Uh, now we're in oh. Thousand Oaks, Westlake Village. Yeah, right. Like, okay. We moved right down the street from Amgen, so that I could uh, either recruit from Amgen or, as we recruited people, their uh, <laughs> their spouses could work for Amgen. So there you go. There you go. And cut your cut your uh, commuting time down pretty significantly. Too. Yeah, I was driving three hours a day, so that's definitely yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that one twenty six can get a little boring after after a while. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And uh, so today, uh, moving forward, um, are you focusing, again, if you can talk about it, great, but are you purely just the uh, inhaled insulin product? Are there other products and ways in which you intend to develop the, the business longer term? Yeah, no, we great, great question. We just rebranded the company in January. So um, we had the same look and feel for 20 years, and we thought it was time for a fresh up, and, and our team did a great job there. And so now you can see we got bright magenta, we have new values, new mission, and, and uh, focus. And so one of the things we took a step back and said, what does our technology do? And we felt that we relieve symptoms of your disease quickly so that you can go back and have the freedom to live your life. And so that's basically our mission is to, you know, work with products in endocrinology and orphan lung diseases that can treat symptoms. So you can take uh, you know, diabetes, you want fast sugars going, migraine. We have a platform of migraine we're working on uh, right now. It looks really good and exciting. Epinephrine uh, is another one. And then pulmonary hypertension, which is an orphan lung disease. We're working with a partner called United Therapeutics, which is going very well. And uh, we just completed our third out of fourth milestone. So that's very exciting. And honestly, I just finished up eight investor calls last Friday. And uh, people are very excited about the future of the company and the role that uh, United Therapeutics is going to play in our, our development. Plus, so when you take our growth going forward, you got a Fresa growing U.S., you got a Fresa growing outside the U.S., you have this United Therapeutics partnership. You got the pipeline moving. So we did a lot in three years. Um, it doesn't feel like that because our stock price has been stagnant, but right. we're still here. We've survived and we've recapitalized and now everything's moving in the right direction. Let's talk a little bit about your management style. And, you know, I've heard recently, particularly with new CEOs, sometimes they are uncomfortable having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered. You know, have you been in that situation? If so, how do you handle that? It's funny because I, I, I think... One of the things I don't do well is I, I, I try to be just like our average employee. And uh-huh. and I'm very open door, very open book, very transparent, for better or for worse. And you know, and I think out loud sometimes, and that actually sometimes creates more work in the system than I like. Uh, and so 
I've tried to realize that even though I'm a person that works as a colleague to my employees, uh, sometimes because of my title as CEO, it, it unfortunately carries more weight than I want that's it right. to. That's right. Um, yeah. and, and so that's just, that's been one of the learning challenges, right? Is, is, you know, as a CEO, people want good leadership. They want clear direction. Uh, and that's been important um, that I've, I've personally had to make some changes in my own style. Mm. Two ears and one mouth comes to mind. Right. right. And, <laughs> you know, and I've always gotten this feedback is, Mike, before people walk in the room, you already know the answer. And I just never believed that because I struggled in school. And therefore, I always thought people were smarter than me and knew more than me. And for me to be smarter than the average person in the room, I, I never really accepted, to be honest with you, until probably the last yeah. five, six, seven years of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I have to do a better job of listening. I'll be the first one to tell you that. Yeah. Um, and I don't mind people challenging me. I actually appreciate yeah. when someone challenges me. And, and I tell them, you got to hit me twice as hard because I'm so thick-headed. I'm Italian. Um, so so don't don't be bashful. Just tell me direct. Because if, if you're being indirect, I'm not going I'm not, to, I'm not smart enough to catch the theme. Um, and, and so I think that as people learn how to work with me, they know I mean well. They know I care about our employees tremendously and their yeah. growth. And uh, they know that I have a passion for what we do. So I just like winning and making differences for people. And sometimes that, that comes across as directive and that's not always meant that way. But we, we will win at the end of the day. I will not let any obstacle hold us back. What other adjustments have you made in your management style, Mike, since you've uh, entered the corner office? Even a little bit before the corner office, but it's really um, because I never sleep. You know, I would work till two, three in the morning every night and and I would send emails. And what I didn't yeah. realize until I got right. a 360 is someone said, I understand you don't sleep, but I do. And so when I wake up first thing in the morning and I got 20 emails, that my days already started off stressful. So I have learned how to actually not send emails as much in the evening. I still do sometimes, so I'll never get rid of it on the CEO. But I, I, I have learned how to do a better job and I've tried to make email less of a way of managing and, and communicating and going back to really honestly picking up the phone and calling people and, and having an open office meetings. So I feel like we, we think because we sent something on email, it's done and we check the box. And and that's, right. and, and that's really a poor way of executing yeah. a communication. And it's still a big problem in, in any company. Well, you know, you've got that send later button you can use. You know, I've, I've only discovered that in the last couple of years. But I'm like you, I'm up to one or two o'clock and I got the same sort of feedback. I'll set it up to where it sends at 930 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. <laughs> I've not learned that feature yet. So that'll be my other gap. I got some technology improvements. But um, yeah. I love it. What about micromanagement? Has that been a style of yours? And if so, how do you deal with that in situations? I, I don't think so. I'd probably say ask my employees, but that's not something um, I expect people to know their job. So that's probably not as much micromanagement as know all the stuff connected to what you do and collaborate with everyone else. And if you're doing that well, we'll get along. But I, I don't have time to micromanage people. I, I really. Yeah. I honestly want to hire good people who are committed to doing their job and doing it the best of anyone in the industry. And uh, I think if you got a committed, passionate team, you win. And, and I don't have to micromanage. But if I got to start micromanaging you, we probably got the wrong employee. Well, you know, the CEO is also responsible for the company culture. And even though you've inherited a company that's, you know, 20 plus years old, it sounds like you've gone through that process recently with a new branding and new values. You know, what would you say is unusual or unique about your culture, mankind? You know, it's really that the can-do attitude. You know, we're a pharmaceutical company by by nature of definition of our drug. Right. But the, the culture and the DNA of the company is much more of a device company where continuous innovation and, and you know, overcoming barriers to solving engineering challenges, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just give you an example, you know, it, the company 
had to figure out a scale of this inhaled powder, and it's never been done in 100 years. We spent $2 billion in 20 years building it. And, you know, they went to the food processing industry to learn how to make Dippin' Dots and borrow that technology to make inhaled insulin. So, you know, we're, we're working on this pipeline compound. There's all kinds of hairy things that happen in the manufacturing process, and this team has just worked continuously to, to innovate how you, you know, like we found some equipment on eBay, and I'm like, who would have thought? Um, so, so, you know, they, they just have this attitude that I, I will figure it out. And I love it about the company. And, you know, I keep telling our employees, we are a consumer-driven company. And we got to act like our patients are the center of our universe. And we got to make it easy for them and make them proud to want to be part of us and our culture. Every drug company wants to run from their, their, their patients and their customers, in my opinion. And because they don't want information from HIPAA, they don't want compliance issues. And I'm like, we're the only industry that says we don't want to know our customer. Every other industry, you do everything you can to know your customer. Yeah, um, and, and so I'm very passionate about putting the patient at the center of everything we do and making sure their experience is as easy as possible and as successful as possible. And, and I think that's what you'll continue to see from us is how do we transform the world around the patient? Because their life is so difficult, what they do every day, living with this disease and every disease any patient has. Yeah. Um, and, and so, well, you know, I think from a pure overcoming obstacles to a consumer-driven mindset, that's who we are. And that, that does differentiate us culturally and, and our people that work here. Yeah. I really like that, putting the patient at the center. That just makes so much sense. What, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Mike? Some of the intangibles. You know, it, yeah. it's funny. I've just come to appreciate. And I, I probably didn't. I don't appreciate. I don't weigh education in terms of what college you went to. Um and, and I always looked at work ethic and, and kind of passion and drive in people. Uh, I've recently had a different new appreciation of some books I'm reading around people that invest to go back to college as part of their career or part of their own development. It, that's a big sacrifice. And I didn't think about it when I did it a couple of times. Uh, I probably spent more of my life in school than out of school. But it's because I just love learning. But when I think about other people who don't love learning, it's true, difficult to do. And so – now I look at that people are investing in themselves and if they go back to college and get an MBA or a master's in something, it's it's another sacrifice and that they're probably committed to success and that, that's the kind of people you want to attract. Yeah. Um, so And then the rest is just people. I mean, you can be an individual contributor, but everyone has an opportunity to be a leader. And I, I, I think sometimes people that are individual contributors don't realize the influence they can have in being a leader, even as an individual contributor. So someone that has that potential... Uh, I'd rather take people have taken risk on me in my career. It's, I became CEO of 40. Um, without people betting on me, I couldn't have gotten to where I am. And, yeah. and I want yeah. to continue to pay that forward um, right. on our on our talent coming up the company. And the same thing with my executive team. I mean, they're incredibly talented and, and have been well experienced. And everyone here works, you know, countless hours and underpaid. Um, but they, they continue to do their job exceptionally well. And I couldn't have assembled a better team. That That's success breeds success. When you interview you when, when people interview here the first thing they walk away with shock and all they're like how does this great group of talent work in a small company and that, that's 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 what i love it, it, is that feedback yeah. consistently comes across when you meet the people here you want to be part of a winning team and that's you know our struggle internally is the stock hasn't taken off in the scripts and what we do for patients hasn't grown as fast as we want but at the same time we had to build everything from scratch over the last three years and i think we're finally through the building and fixing phase. And now it's a matter of execution phase. And that, that's our that's job awesome. to do that. So. Yeah. Great. 
great, great philosophy. We're, we're almost out of time, Mike, but I do have a couple other questions. And, you know, one of them, of course, is around COVID. There's lots of speculation about what work is going to look like, let alone, you know, our lives out in the world. What changes do you see ahead, specifically for mankind and then maybe broadly for the pharma field? Yeah. So as people will be listening to this probably in the late July, August timeframe, I'll say it now. I, I think in six months, we're going to be looking back and saying, what COVID, just like we did with SARS and Ebola and um, Zika. And 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 I'm in the minority in that one. And so I say that today because because I think that's where things will be. I hope I'm right for society's sake. Um, right. But in, in the event I'm wrong, just like we took a week to migrate our whole company virtual, you know, we'll migrate our company to a future state. And therefore, you know, I'm going to plan to get back to normal and get our people safely back to work and, and protection. Um, but but I do think uh, COVID has Put a, a, I was just talking to Google right before you and I chatted, and that's one of the things I was talking about is, you know, this accelerated healthcare transformation by a decade, and meaning telehealth is now real and a potential opportunity. Right. Virtual training of patients is now real. All these things we've been working on literally just leapfrogged overnight. So, yeah. Yeah. so I believe mankind is innovative yeah. enough to get ahead of the curve now and make this sustainable for us. And that's really what you'll see from us going forward. We will be part of telehealth. We will have virtual training. We will have better reimbursement mm. support. Um, so we're launching a whole bunch of new programs in the second half of this year that I'm very excited about. That's um, great. And, and we've been able to build these programs virtually. So whether our people are physically together, um, we I do believe we've lost some of that uh, brainstorming and whiteboarding um, of how to transform ourselves faster in a, in a COVID world. Um, so that's what I miss. But I think, you know, what is the role of headquarters? What is the role of an office? Um, There's going to be interesting questions for people to ask. And I'm part of a yeah. YPO and, a, and it's another CEO group. And, you know, that's what we're talking about is where, where does commercial real estate go? And do you need a smaller footprint? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if you can make your employee base to 5 billion people around the world, that changes your cost structure. And, um, sure you know, so really, I mean, I got friends who are closing down their California offices and moving out and just saying, I'm going to yeah. hire someone anywhere in the world now. Yeah, there's going to be a, a, a lot of changes and, and, and probably a more efficient world and a lot of innovation. I know that was shared with me recently that there's probably going to be three or four companies that will be household names in three to five years from now that we don't even know today. Right. They haven't even existed. Maybe mankind will be one of them. Let's hope so. Hope everyone will be on a health platform and at least one out of three diabetes patients will uh, will help. But no, yeah. I, so I, I think it's. It's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be scary for people. It's naturally to not, you know, I think the biggest thing that will change is business travel. Um, yes. I've never not traveled my entire 20 some years of working. I don't think I've been four months in one place ever in my life. Yeah, I was just talking <laughs> to my buddy, my school. executive <laughs> yeah. at Aon. He's like, I've never not used my passport this much. So right. Right. I, I think the cost savings that come from meetings like Zoom and telephone, you know, I, I think if you can get comfortable with the video conferencing and actually turning on the video, I think you can save a ton of productivity and increase yeah, your productivity, um, especially me on the West Coast. Half my meetings are on the East Coast, so you know I take a lot of red eyes because my kids and seeing them. Um, but but uh, I think business travel probably is the biggest area that will transform. Well, Michael, we're just about out of time, but uh, just one last question we ask all of us of our CEO guests: what, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's got their eyes on the corner office and you know maybe uh, wants to uh, head up a company you know like you someday? Uh, always follow your dreams. Don't ever give up. And mm. if uh, you find a ball, remember, you know, and I never really saw this until I kept growing is when you're a great employee, your bosses don't want to give you up. Your department doesn't want to give you up. So if you're growing your career and you feel like you're at a roadblock and you can't escape, 
swap companies and, and grow the next level that way because life is too short and you got to be satisfied when you look back that you you made the right career decisions, you made the right personal decisions for you and your family. And um, my, my last piece of advice is don't don't forsake your family. Like so many executives get to the end of the career, they reach the highest levels of success and financial success and personal success. And I will tell you how many people regret not being there for their kids' graduations or not yeah. being there for their kids' moments. And that's my other advice is you don't have regrets in life. And so when you look back, no one's going to ask you, did you take an extra meeting? Did you work 8 o'clock at night? Did you jump on that airplane? And uh, so that that's my advice is make sure you're satisfied when you look back professionally, financially, successfully, personally, um, and and uh, to do your best to maintain that balance. It's not easy, yeah. um, but, so but it's important. Well, Michael Castagna, Chief Executive Officer of Mankind Corporation, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 